I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stone. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. You said Picasso, and the point is that technically he was a master. I mean, he could draw anything. He could do a perfect human figure. He right. could do like the, the, you know, all of the lighting, all of the, you know, all of that. He had it down. So then that, I think, gives you like carte blanche to then be able to be like, to break it down. And what do we call that? We call that modernism. That is Francisco Magoya, head chef at Modernist Cuisine. Our guest on today's episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman, and our guest today is one of the more influential chefs, I would say, in the world, which is quite a statement considering that he hasn't been associated with a particular restaurant for several years. Francisco Magoya is head chef at the renowned culinary lab Modernist Cuisine, co-author of Modernist Bread, and also of another book, a forthcoming book, on pizza. We'll talk about all that in a few minutes. Before I introduce him properly, I just want to remind everybody that, as always, I hope you'll take a moment to visit our relatively new andrewtalkstochefs.com website, where you can peruse our catalog of more than 100 episodes, read my Toklan blog, send us an email or voicemail, and subscribe to our e-mailing list. Again, that is andrewtalkstochefs.com. Also, if I may just take just another moment before introducing Francisco, we are making a bit of a drive this year to ask you, our listeners, to please tell a friend about the show. It occurred to me last week that might be too general a request, so this week I'd like to make a specific suggestion. We hear from a lot of cooks and chefs, but one population we don't hear from all that often is younger listeners. I'm talking people maybe in their teens who are considering a career in the kitchen. So if you know a young person who just took that first dishwashing job and loves it, or has been hooked on food television since they were five years old, or who loves restaurants and thinks they might want to spend their life cooking in one, I would humbly suggest that the stories on this show would be an amazing resource for someone considering a career in the kitchen. So I'd love if you would share it with your kids, if, if this describes them or the parents of a kid who you think might want to pass it along to their children and who might benefit from the life stories and the breadth of life stories that we share on this show. I'd really appreciate it. Okay, I met this week's guest, Francisco Magoya, about a year ago at Chef's Roll's first anti-convention in San Diego, California. We did a short interview as part of the compilation show that week. But we really hit it off, and I really wanted to do a longer, more biographical interview when we had time. So we resolved to do that the next time Francisco was in New York. That ended up being back in the early fall when we were on hiatus as we were transitioning to independence, and we recorded this interview then. I'm pleased to finally be able to share it with you now. In addition to his work at Modernist Cuisine, Francisco has been the pastry chef at both the French Laundry and Bouchon Bakery. He's been a professor at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. He authored three books of his own before finding his way to modernist cuisine. And he also has way too many other accomplishments for me to mention. He does have a rather extensive bio on the Modernist Cuisine website, which I will link to on the episode page for this show if you want to read up more on him. But suffice it to say, uh, he's got a lot of accomplishments uh, that are very far-ranging and well worth familiarizing yourself with. Before jumping into the interview, just a few quick notes to help orient you. First of all, in the conversation, I sound a little hoarse. The reason for that is we had just had the second anniversary celebration party for the podcast the night before this interview. So I think there were maybe eight hours between when I left the party and when I hit record on on the recorder for this show. So that's the reason for that. I wasn't sick. Um, I just uh, didn't have much voice left. 
If you want to hear the episodes we refer to in this conversation, specifically my chat with Francisco in San Diego last year, and my conversation with Daniele Uditi and Dan Richer, two people at the forefront of the artisanal pizza movement in the United States. Again, if you visit the episode page on andrewtalkstochefs.com, you can find those links. And finally, this interview was recorded in one of our homes away from home, the private dining room at the wonderful Benno restaurant in New York City. And you'll hear that Jonathan Benno makes a brief cameo during this conversation. I think that's all I need to tell you before we get into it. So let's get right to it. Here is my conversation with the brilliant Francisco Magoya of Modernist Cuisine. Here you go. Francisco, glad to have you in New York. Happy to be here. You're one of our first, uh, what do they say on the game shows? Returning guests. Uh, yes. Uh, this has not happened much at all. Oh, really? Yeah, well, there's a lot of chefs out there, so uh-huh. it's kind of like, why do why that? repeat? Uh, we did our first interview at the chef's role, April. what did they call it, the anti-convention. Anti-convention. In San Diego. Mm-hmm. And when we do those interviews, they tend to be sort of less biographical, more mm-hmm. sort of more sort of freeform. Mm-hmm. We kind of had a good rapport. Yes. And we had said that if we were ever in the same city at the same time again, we would do a more proper, right. you know, what for this show is a more traditional biographical interview. Right. Which is what we're going to do today. Fantastic. And I have to say on air, I said this privately, but I realize you sort of timed this trip to be here for our second anniversary Mm -hmm. celebration. I kind of wanted to be here, yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. I appreciate that. Any excuse to come to New York. (laughs) (laughs) You still feel that way? You don't have the West Coaster Um, uh, uh, antipathy toward New York? No, well, I mean, I could never live here. There's just Uh, no way. Uh, But uh, I mean, visiting is two days is just the right amount of time right. to get you know your fix, fix, and then you get out. Okay, you go back to Seattle or wherever it is yes. that you're from. But yeah, I don't I don't feel the need to have New York as you know an integral part of my life anymore. Uh huh. So. You we should say we'll get to this, but you yeah. did spend, do your time here. I did. I feel like I did my time. Yeah, you, know? you were here. That sufficed. Yeah. Okay. So all right, let's go all the way back. Sure. Uh, and I should say we, if I seem at any point in this interview to be going a little quickly, it is because you actually do, you have a plane to make. Correct. To go yes. back. Okay. So, all right. First of all, you uh, were born in Mexico. Mexico City, yes. Your background, am I correct? It's it's Mexican, mm-hmm. Spanish, mm-hmm. Italian. Yes. Can you break that down for me? <laughs> Who was from where? My mother is actually, she's Italian-American. She was born in Brooklyn, and uh, something that I learned when I was living in Brooklyn is that she was born in a house that was like two blocks away from where I was living. I used to live in Bed-Stuy. And Bed-Stuy when you were here as a cook? Yeah. Okay. Um, Bed-Stuy, I, I guess it's becoming a cooler neighborhood now. It was not when I lived yeah. there. By any extent no. of the imagination. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so she's Italian-American. Uh, she's born in Brooklyn. Um, my dad is from Spain. Uh-huh. And so he, when he was very young, his parents emigrated to Mexico during the Civil War. Got it. Uh, in Spain, obviously. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, you know, they, my mom was doing, uh, I think it was, she's a teacher. She was doing a teacher exchange yeah. in Mexico. And somehow friends of friends, you know, they went out together and they met. And, yeah. you know, years later they married. My mom moved down to Mexico. Okay. Um and so, yeah, that's that's my background, and I'm Mexican because I was born in Mexico, and yes. because uh, you know it's just my. I mean, culturally, I identify very much with with Mexico. So. Do you identify with any of these other? I mean, pretty much every you know Spanish mm-hmm. and Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are cultures that tend to be fairly tenacious mm-hmm. within a family. Like these are roots that tend not to mm-hmm. die off. You're right. Yeah. Did, were they were they a presence in your childhood? Yes, mostly and this is going to sound cliché but in the food yeah. aspect. Yeah, well um, I, would, I would assume that. Um yeah. more than anything else. I mean not so much like uh, lifestyle or you know it was more about what the what was put on the table what the was house. put on the table and it, I mean it was a mishmash of you know different things all the time yeah. uh, Italian or Spanish or American or Mexican um, and Did everybody cook most of the time 
there were these uh, these wonderful women who worked at uh, my parents' house, yeah. who were amazing cooks, amazing. I mean, it was like these were Mexican. Women. Yeah, yeah. And you know, some were. Um, I mean, it was incredible. Like some still spoke their native language, yeah. which wasn't Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was. It, it it was incredible for me to have this like resource in my house that I didn't even know. I didn't want to be a chef when I was growing up. Right. You know, I just loved the food they made. Yeah. What um, kind of stuff? What really pops when you think about it? My God, whatever you would imagine is like street food uh-huh. because it wasn't like. You know, it wasn't like elegant meals, but they yeah. would make mole from scratch. Sure. You know, it was never bought. Yeah. Uh, and then different kinds of moles. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, tamales every weekend. Um, egg. I mean, my God, they made the best chorizo from scratch too. You know, yes. there were these. It was just like I. The problem is thinking that that's normal. <laughs> you know, right. growing up, that you're right. thinking that this is something everybody has. Yeah. Um, and then when you don't have it, it's like uh, you. I guess you appreciate it more. Yes. Yeah. Once that's gone. Yeah. Um, but it, I mean, it's really cool. I don't know how much, uh, people talk about this, but people who work in people's homes in Mexico, they, they like sit with them to eat. It's not like there's this, like you, it's not like a class. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they become kind of like part of the family. So it's, it's, I guess I was very fortunate to have like this, like really like deeply Mexican, uh, you know, cultural, thing happening right in front of me and then like the Spanish uh, side and the Italian side yeah. and the American side and so it's it was never like hey you have to appreciate all these things yeah. uh, it's just that's what it was you yeah. know and that was like a, the, the normal day to day and again you only start to realize it once you start thinking about um, you know where you're from and what yeah. you do and so forth you know my stepmother is from Cuba oh really and I don't know if this is as 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 um, you know, widespread a cultural thing is what you just described. But when you said the thing about you know the the people who work in the house sit down with the family, mm-hmm. uh, I remember when one of my half siblings, my father, my stepmother had two kids, mm-hmm. had a birthday party, and, the, and they invited their housekeeper to the oh, birthday really? party. Mm-hmm. And you know, my father, who grew up upper middle class mm-hmm. Jewish. Philadelphia, mm-hmm. you know, suburbs, he was surprised mm-hmm. and he was fine with it. And my stepmother said, well, didn't, didn't you invite, you know, if you had a housekeeper, would they not have been invited? Mm-hmm. And he was like, absolutely <laughs> no. not. That never would have happened, uh-huh. you know, with anybody I've ever known in America. Right. Um, it is a beautiful thing. I right. mean, it really does stop you and make it, it's, it's a very telling detail. It is. And I think it's important to remark that because I, I mean, to me, it would be very uncomfortable if there were that like distinction, right? Like, yeah. even though it, it's people who, you know, they collect a salary. Right. Right. But it's, it's still, it's, it's seen as this job that is like uh, very, I like, uh, it's very, I know the word in Spanish and I can't. What is it in but, Spanish? Uh, servil. Oh, like, okay. it's like uh, you're, you're basically catering to the master of the house, mm-hmm. you know? And so that, that to me makes, does make me, like if it, if that was like the distinction and the the right. you know that would make me very uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but like it's funny when I go home to visit my parents. I mean, they're still some of them are still there. And I've, these women you grew up around. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, but I like it. Like I I clear my own dishes. I wash my own dishes. Yeah. Okay. I've become. I don't. That's not something that is yeah. is in my life anymore, and I've and it actually makes me feel like weird to have people like picking up after me, right. you know, like right. Um, but it's just you know that's it's in the United States. I mean, who can afford having people, yeah, you know, yeah, cooks at home? I mean, there's a handful of people who can afford yeah. that. But um, I guess it, it was uh, I was greatly fortunate to have that in yeah. growing up. So you were not originally going to be a chef. You even said a minute ago that you right. didn't have that desire as a kid. What was your What was your original flight path? Where were you headed? <laughs> I deeply wanted to be an artist, uh-huh. um, and I still do. I'm still trying. <laughs> do you consider yourself an artist? Uh, I mean, when do you when do you become something? Like, right? I mean, there's there's things that you can get a, a diploma for that says that right. you're you know you're you have a PhD or whatever, and then you become that. Yeah. But I feel like. You're either born an artist or you're not born. That's an what artist. I mean. I think I am. 
Yeah. Uh, but then the distinction is whether you're a good artist or not. Yes. Artist, right? right. So you can think you're an artist, but I mean, it's. And then what makes a good artist a bad artist is so subjective, right? Right. It's not like food because food is something that has to taste good to more people than not. Yes. For you to be considered a successful chef. Yes. An artist can, you know, paint whatever and or sculpt whatever, and some people may like it, some people may not. Some yes. people may, you know, critique the technique or the method uh, as as like not being very uh, detailed or not being as uh, technically accurate yes. or well done. Yes. Uh, but still, an artist, even in though that is is maybe not very well trained, could be a millionaire. You know, mm -hmm. like it's it's right. it's such a crapshoot, right? I, I, yeah. I I've never understood the art world because you have some very talented people that will never make a living off of their art, and then yeah. some that, you know, they make a particular kind of art that is, I don't I don't I don't want to you know have any negative right. connotations to any, it, but right. or you name, don't anyone. name anybody, right? But, but I know what you mean. But, but it's like please, it's an interesting distinction between uh, art and cooking, right? Mm -hmm. Because cooking, at the end of the day, it's got to taste good. It has to taste or, good. Or uh, you might get a little attention for being flashy, but eventually you're going to be... You're Put gonna to be, the you're test, gonna be, for You're sure. going to be gone. Art, however, is so subjective. Yes. Like you, I don't want to name any place, but a couple of weekends ago, my wife and I spent an afternoon at a prominent museum mm -hmm. at a show. Mm -hmm. And um, it wasn't a particular artist. It was a group thing. And, you know, I said, God. You know, I'd love to meet some of these artists. I bet they have really got their mm -hmm. sales, you know, their whole thing down. I bet right. they have the look and the attitude <laughs> and the, you know, to convince to get people to buy into it. Because right. with art, if you can you can convince people, mm -hmm. it it's not as as uh, black and white as something like taste. Right. I well, mean, as taste on your palate. Sure. Right. So this is kind of what you're saying. It's it. I think you can game the system if you're good enough at. Well, isn't I mean you could almost be a con, no pun intended, but well, a con artist. Didn't wasn't it Andy Warhol who said, "Is that art is what you can get away with?" Is that was that his quote? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's kind of true, right? It is kind of true. I think with cooking, there is you know, there's always a question whether food is art, right? Mm -hmm. And that question will never be answered. I yeah. think, um, although some people are certain of their answer, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I still don't know. Yeah. But I will say that behind most dishes, there is an artistic inspiration. Meaning it's, so, it's self-expressive. Sometimes yes. meaning there's well, a graphic element. You have to think about how you're going to put it on the plate. Yeah. Right? Yep. So whether that matters to you or not is a different story. But even how you put spaghetti and meatballs on a plate, there is some thought behind some sort of composition yes. there. Whether you care deeply about it or not is a different story, and that's yeah. the difference between some restaurants and other restaurants, mm -hmm. right? Caring deeply about even the simplest things, just having a visual appeal. Yes. I mean, isn't that the, that's the first perception, right? You put, there, somebody puts something in front of you to eat. Yes. If it looks awful, you've already made some decisions in your mind before you even tasted it. Um, but, and, it, it, but it won't, in most contexts, it's not going to... You're not going to have a, a long and brilliant career as a chef based strictly on that. No, but I think it does open a bunch of doors. And uh, I think, for example, if people, people can now know you without having your food via social media, right? Yeah. They don't have to go to your restaurant or your bakery or pastry yes. shop. But if I think the success of many, uh, at least contemporary pastry chefs, yes. has been... Uh, whatever pictures are posting on Instagram and how people react to them. And people may have never had their food, but they're like, oh, this guy's the best pastry chef. That guy's the best pastry yeah. chef. But it also helps, like, uh, there's this French pastry chef. His name is C Cedric Grolet. The guy has like 1.4 million followers. His pastries are beautiful. I, it, is, it is something to behold. But what that did is it opened up a bunch of doors for him. And like, he... he owns a couple of, of pastry shops in yeah. Paris now because yeah. of that crazy fame he obtained on, yeah. on social media. And so I think it does have that positive aspect in that regard where yeah. more people can see it and they want to taste it after they see it. Well, right. It, it yeah. is right. It, it's a door opener. I mean, it's, yes. it's, it, what you're saying is very similar to me to the change that has occurred around um, television, mm -hmm. right? So... You know, you go back into like the 80s, and how did a chef get to be on television? Well, they got on television by being a great chef. Yeah. Oh, here's 
Wolfgang, everyone knows Wolfgang Puck is this celebrity chef. Wolfgang Puck trained in three-star Michelin restaurants. He mm-hmm. got famous in the U.S. doing pizza and salads and right. you know, all this stuff. But his training was formidable. Yeah, he had the right? chops, of course. He had the chops. Or you know, someone like you know, John George would go on mm-hmm. David Letterman. Why? Because he just got four stars in the sure. New York Times. That's how you got on TV. Mm-hmm. Then the, with the advent of the cooking competitions, and mm-hmm. I'm not even denigrating them, I don't really philosophically have a problem with them. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I think some are better than others. I don't watch many of them at all. But people get to be famous chefs w- without people having actually tasted their food. Oh, That's yeah. The, and they and, get awards. And, and they, Not just like, awards. They, they might get a backer. They sure. might you know, get financing for a restaurant or a, or a concept or a chain. Because they have a bunch of nice pictures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the inverse, you know, right. and I always mm-hmm. say that that's the big, to me, missing element of food television, right? Mm-hmm. Because, like, if you watch American Idol, mm-hmm. well, you can tell if the person can sing. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, but of when course. you watch Top Chef, you, you can't tell if you can their only food's guess. any good. Yeah. You, you can know, only you're guess. trusting Tom Kalikio and Padma Lakshmi mm-hmm. and whoever the third, you know, is visiting that right. week. I mean, you know, at least one of those people has great taste. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but that's what you're going on. You have haven't had it for yourself, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, those people, you don't even have to win the show anymore. No. If you had the personality exactly. or whatever, something's yeah. going to draw people in. And some of that works out for people and some yeah. of it doesn't in the long run. Mm-hmm. So how do you, am I right? It was a friend of yours who kind of thought you might want to try your hand in a kitchen? A very good friend of mine, he, um, his mother knew somebody in a, the HR department in a hotel in Mexico City. And he, and I was looking for a job. Yeah. And so he said that he could put in a, his mother could put in a good word in for me uh, to be like a trainee cook in, in this hotel. Um, and I, I, I didn't even have to interview. It was like the right. weirdest thing because I, I obviously had no training. I was in high school, and it was I was thrown into a line in a hotel restaurant. Yeah. Like, okay, here we go. Right. Um, and I stuck around for a good year. I would go after school every day. Um, and you know, in hindsight, I mean, I just think of the food I used to have to do, and it's it's pretty. It's really funny because I used to like. One of my jobs was to make uh, rose tomatoes. You mean carving the little yeah. petals? And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was, you know, there were, the head chef was this Norwegian guy. Um, huge, imposing figure. And so that's where I learned how to tourne vegetables. Was this hotel part of a national, international chain or was it like some ritzy? It was, I, it is part of an international okay. chain. Um, okay, so fairly high end, a lot of banquet yes. stuff. Yeah, yeah, okay. High volume, you know, everything. Back in those days in Mexico, uh, all fancy food was French. Yeah, that was it. Or was what we would call like continental. Continental, yeah, right. yes, yes, right. Um, so that's the kind of that's what yes, you were dealing. One hundred percent, very classic, yeah. old school French. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that that was a, an interesting introduction into. Uh, the world of cooking, because I was also rotated around to different departments, uh-huh. banquets, and even pastry. Um, and so I did that, f- I, I, th- I don't know if it was a year or two years, but I stopped going after I, I finished high school and went into college. Okay. Um, and you went into college for? So I was going to go to art school. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to art school, uh, but I was convinced by my parents to do something more practical. Yeah. And, um, and I, I'm thankful that I did that because I, like we were talking about earlier, I have a lot of friends that are extremely talented artists who are not doing the work they want to do. They're doing work to pay the bills and, Mm. you know, they, somehow you get so involved in that work of, of that you're doing to pay the bills that you stop doing your art. So when you say, you mean they're doing work that is tangential to their craft? In other words, they're doing like like greeting cards or that kind of thing? No, they're... They have day Working jobs. in restaurants okay. and in uh, okay. you know, front it. of the house. But or it there. leaves them with nothing to... I mean, isn't there a point where you're like... I mean, when, I mean, when do you give up on a dream, right? Yeah. I mean, where, where is the point where... You know, I, I know this is a huge downer, but at what point do you stop wanting to be that artist? Or, or at what point do you realize, well, maybe I'm starting to... 
I'm, I'm getting too old for this, or right. I don't have the fire in me anymore after working, right. I don't know, 12 hour shifts. That's right. Am I still going to go home to my painting and paint? And yeah. maybe in your 20s you'll do that, early 30s, 40s. But uh, the restaurant game is a young person's game, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be able to do it right, it's, yeah. it's you know, it requires a particular kind of stamina. Yeah. Especially if you have something on the side that you wanted to do. Yes. Right? Yeah. You're on your feet all day. It's a, it's a physical job. Are you yeah. going to go home and paint? Maybe. Maybe it's the way you wind down. But it's, I feel like there's a, there's a point where the dream does kind of get lost. Yeah. And I don't want to generalize. I mean, I, right. and you can become, I guess, in your 50s, a very successful uh, artist. But that's yeah. the that's exception. Rare. Yeah, for not sure. Not the rule. Yeah. Um, and so I, I went to, um, it's, it was not exactly cooking school. It was a um, uh, school that was like a hospitality. Like, uh, you know, so my, I finished a four-year degree of hotel and restaurant management. Uh-huh. Where was this? In Mexico City. Okay. But I was very fortunate in that the school that I attended, they had a relationship with a school in France, in Strasbourg. And so I applied for a scholarship to go there, and I obtained it uh, after this, my second year of college. Yeah. And so I spent a year in France. Yeah. And it was also a, it was a more, I mean, it, it's, it had a more practical application to, yeah. um, it was more vocational, I suppose. Yes. And so there was a lot more kitchen hours, a lot more dining room hours. Yeah. Um, so that you can, when you left that school, you could go work in a restaurant right away, you yeah. know, or go on an apprenticeship somewhere. Yes. Um, and so it was, it was a, a, for me, it's one of the things that has impacted me the most, um, having spent that year there. And also because it was Strasbourg, which is, you know, the northeast, uh, right. northeast part of France. Beautiful region. I mean, what region in France doesn't have good food? <laughs> and so it was, it was, and I was by myself, and, you know, it was like, it was a very, very enriching experience to have spent a year in France. And also, it was, a, it was really hard because it was, you know, it, my teachers were all those old school French guys who hated everybody. Um, when you say hated everybody, you mean hated everybody not life. from France or just, <laughs> just everybody, under them, everybody under them on the pecking order? Yeah, miserable. We talk in screaming. Yeah, throwing thing, like throwing. actual throwing. You actually saw that. Yes, at and people. thankfully it, I wasn't the recipient. But ever. at people. Yes. You saw that for real. People, I think when people say that, mm-hmm. younger people think that that's some cartoonish exaggeration. No. That was a real thing. I mean, forget throwing. There were chefs who would smack you. Yes. I and mean, that happened too. That's not fiction. No, and, and like they would harass female yeah, sure. students, like, but like almost embarrassingly so. But You mean because it was so overt? Because yeah. it was like they thought it was their birthright. Yeah. 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 Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong. Yeah, no reason to hide it. No. Yeah. Um, and so it was, and this was, um, what, 1994. Not that long ago. Not that long in ago. In the scheme of things. I was 20. So yeah. I, was, I was still. Like, you know, starting to become an adult and so forth. And anyway, so it was very formative uh, to be able to, you know, be in the school, but also live the experience of living in, in, in that culture in, in Strasbourg. Two questions for you. One is, when you make that leap to go to France, mm-hmm. into that program, what, did you have a sense of where you wanted to go? Like what you want, what kind of chef you wanted mm-hmm. to be, what you might want to, like, you know, what kind of style you might want to pursue, mm-hmm. even just a broad sense, or was it just, it seemed like a good idea to go to France if you wanted to pursue this cooking thing generally? The latter. The latter. Yes. So this was this very pure, classical notion yes. of, um, I'll figure the rest out later. Right uh-huh. now, I'm just, I'm, I'm developing the building blocks. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, one of the biggest. Uh, I guess conflicts I have I had was how when am I going to learn what goes with what? Yes, you know, like how am I going to learn plating uh, combinations and, and flavor combinations and texture combinations? Where do I get that? And because there wasn't a book for that, there wasn't like I guess all you had to do was like start working in a restaurant to, but then you're you're doing that chef style, I suppose. Yeah. And I, I thought, why isn't there like a guide or a rule book that says, okay, well, this protein goes with these sauces. And like, yeah. or, you know, I, and I don't know, maybe it was very naive of me to think that, yeah. that somebody was going to actually like teach me that. Yes. Uh, but I, I desperately wanted somebody to, to, you know, tell me, okay, these are the things that match and you can put together and, yeah. you know. 
Um, well, it's also interesting to me that you, I'm going to overgeneralize slightly, mm-hmm. the, 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 the cultures that you are a product of, mm-hmm. from a food standpoint, mm-hmm. are in many ways in, exist in opposition to the French yes. uh, mm-hmm. palate, mm-hmm. right, and culinary sensibility. Mm-hmm. You know, Italian food on the whole, and this is what I love about it, I love both, but mm-hmm. Italian food is so much more... Um, um, I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but you'll know what I mean. It's I, much simpler to prepare. Yeah, it's much. It, food is 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 goes through fewer transformational mm-hmm. steps on its way to the plate mm-hmm. than it does in French food. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, Spanish food, especially even more so now. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole. You know, a lot of the whatever you want to call it, the molecular or mm-hmm. modernist movement. I mean, there's a. I remember eating at Paul Bocuse's restaurant, mm-hmm. and on the back of the menu. There was sort of a, almost like a mission statement. It was in several languages, and in one of them it says, "You will find nowhere on this menu will you find, you know, any nod toward the modernist leanings of." It actually said that. Oh my god! Ten years ago. My <laughs> point is though. So even though you ate really well growing mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. there was an element of it that was not mm-hmm. useful to you in this. You know, you had to kind of start all over again in some ways in terms of right. a palate. Well. But also, and as is that far as, accurate? Yes, but also, I think the most important thing to me was to get the technique and method down. And I think, I mean, I would be lying if I said that the French are not the masters of technique and yeah. method for cooking. They are, sure. and I and I will always say that, whether we like their the French cuisine or not, that's a very different story. Yeah. But if you can learn. Even learning how to tourney is important for knife skills. Even though nobody is going to, you know, tourney anymore, yeah. it did teach me very good knife skills. Yes. Um, and, of course, brunoise and all that stuff. Whether you do brunoise or not, it doesn't matter. It's, you're learning how to use a knife. Yeah. It's, 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 that is incidental. The brunoise is incidental. It's, it's not the main character. Yeah. It's developing that muscle memory that you can only do by doing all these precise cuts. Yes. Um, and by under, you know, it, it's while it's not a very scientific approach, it is a very technical approach to cooking. And I think till this day, still, and, and maybe it's more true for pastry. I mean, the the mastery of, of, of French technique is yeah. it's it's unparalleled, right? So I wouldn't have gone to Italy to learn how to cook, even though I'm sure there's there are great schools there. I wouldn't have gone to Spain right. or Germany. Yes. I mean, for me, it's like you go to France. That there yeah. wasn't even a question yes. about yeah. where to go. You could draw a lot of easy analogies, right? These were mm-hmm. a little facile, mm-hmm. but to these other disciplines we've talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Most great artists, mm-hmm. even the you know great modern artists, started off learning the, a lot of the basic yes. classic techniques, and then they broke all those rules, right? Well, you, you said Picasso, and that is 100% yeah. accurate. He, there was a line he had about that I can't remember it and and I know exactly what you're talking about but the point is that he could like technically he was a master I mean he could draw anything he could do a perfect human figure he right. could do like the, the you know all of the lighting all of the you know all of that he had it down so then that I think gives you like carte blanche to then be able to be like to break it down yes and what do we call that we call that modernism right okay yeah. so we either like it or we don't like it. We either like it in cooking and yes. not in art, or do we like it in art and not in cooking? What stigma do we attach to that to different aspects and different arts? Yeah. Right? Um, but anyway, yes, first, I think you have to know how to do even these mother sauces that nobody uses, or at least most of them are not used anymore. Yeah. But it's the foundation to everything else. Yeah. Um, you know, if I think of... Again, it's it's not whether you like it or not, but if you think of Jackson Pollock, how many people look at a Jackson Pollock and all they see is splatter paint? Yeah. But if you learn the importance of it, yeah. meaning he was the first right. to do that, then the value that that, that painting has has exponentially increased yeah. and maybe your perception of it. Yes. People saying, oh, I could do that, but you didn't. Right. And you can't probably. Yeah, and it's hard for people, especially who are born into a world where those things already exist, to right. understand how mm-hmm. revolutionary they were. Right. You know, one line I know Picasso said was, you know, something, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he said, you know, you do something original, and then someone else comes along and does it pretty. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. He definitely used the word pretty, because mm-hmm. it it's a very scathing, actually, comment, mm-hmm. you know. But his point was he was first. Well, yeah. and then he has another one that says that the best artists know how to steal. 
But I, I can't think of anybody who started with their own style right off the bat. Right. I mean, initially you do steal, whether you choose to give credit or not to yes. the person you stole from is a different story and it speaks to your integrity or lack thereof. You know, if you're making a clear, you're making a clear. Nobody has ownership over an eclair. Right. Um, but there are certain techniques that, or methods, or, or ingredients, or, or that are connected to one chef. Yes. Uh, you start doing them, and you start to play them off as your own. That's that is a bit of a, a bad form, in my opinion. Totally. totally. But if you're doing it in your restaurant, and you're doing it as a young chef or young cook, I think that that's how you start. You start. You, you want to see all these different things, see how they work out, and then, you know, you eventually can develop. I mean, what is your own style? I mean, I, I don't, I, what does that mean? I don't, it's, if you look nowadays at most plated desserts, a lot of them look the same. Yep. There's a, th we go through these different phases of like, you know, we throw everything on the plate and then it looks like a pile of compost. Uh, or we do it very geometrical or we do like, you know, but, but and we go through these phases. Yeah. And there's this sameness that is happening. And, you know, the person who breaks out of that is the person who all of a sudden starts to become very, very well-renowned and very well-known. Yes. And a lot of attention. Because it's very hard to create your own identity. Well, especially right? now. Yes. Because, you know, I say this all the time. It's become like a catchphrase of mine. Somebody puts a new dish up on, a pa on the pass in Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. And some line cook, mm -hmm. you know, heading into work in L.A., mm -hmm. sees it. Like within a second on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how do you how do you stay pure? How do you how do you cordon yourself off from those influences? Right, you Whereas almost it, would have to not ever see them. You'd almost have to be like some weird, uh, you know, uh, uh -huh. virtual hermit. Right. Before I lose it, though, I want to ask you one other question mm -hmm. uh, about your time in France because mm -hmm. you were describing the the chef instructor there, right? Mm -hmm. And. Um, you know, this is the second time, well, third time if we count last night, but mm -hmm. that you and I have sat down and talked. You seem like a, you know, you tell this story about your family and mm -hmm. like the, you know, the people who worked at mm -hmm. the house at the table, right? You, you, you seem like to me both in the stuff you've described about your upbringing and, mm -hmm. and how you come off. You seem like a humble person. Um, I'm so humble. You are so humble. <laughs> That's very funny. No, but you do. You seem to have at least a modesty mm -hmm. about you. Um, you seem to have a fairly, I don't know what you were like in a kitchen, mm -hmm. but you seem to have, um, you seem like a relatively gentle soul, mm -hmm. okay? If you don't mind me saying mm -hmm. that. Um, you know, you go over there and you're confronted with this, at that time, mm -hmm. and still in some ways it does exist, you know, it's not totally eradicated, mm -hmm. Let's, if we're honest. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're confronted with that as the sort of, Okay, here's a school that's mm -hmm. put this person out as mm -hmm. like an acceptable leadership figure. Mm -hmm. Did that cause you any moments of self-doubt? Did that cause you to wonder if maybe you were going to need to sort of change how you behaved in a mm -hmm. professional setting? Did that cause you to, I'll just throw it out there that broadly. Did it, did, it, did it give you any pause? Well, it did make me realize that I didn't want to become a screamer pot thrower. I mean, that's, it's, it's, first of all, it's not good form. It's mean. It's yeah. horrible. Yeah. But also you look so ridiculous when you do that. And it's, I'm not saying this as from a vanity standpoint, but when somebody loses it and they start yelling and shouting, it's a ridiculous thing. Yeah. Um, and you lose people's respect. Right. Yeah. And it's, and I'm not going to say that I've, I've always been cool and level headed in the kitchen. I mean, yeah. there's been moments where I had to walk out. And you know, because you were going to lose breath. your composure. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it, you, you have to you have to think of when is when is it worth to actually like completely lose it, or when is it worth to just like hold it in, take a deep breath, and then talk about it later. Right. Um, I mean, and, and on that note, I mean, it really depends on who you ask. If I, I have people that told me that it was the best boss they ever had, uh -huh. and I've had people say I was so scared of you and. I was terrified and I was, and I said, but well, did I do anything to, you know, that made you feel that way? And it's like, no, I think it, sometimes people talk about you and they create a persona of you without even knowing who you are. And, and so they, they, they build up this image of you in their head. And, and what was know, that image that these people described? Was, uh, it, was it almost the absence of the outburst? Was it maybe, like, the, like they perceived like, like a simmering tension? Well, I would say that it's almost, I would, I would compare it, I don't want to compare myself to, to TK, to Thomas Keller, but yeah. like he never had to yell. 
he all he had to do was look at you a certain way and you would feel like you wanted to die. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm sure. Because um, you may have done something, you know, not up to, to snuff or up to par. And, yeah. I, and I, while I was never, I never have raised my voice in a kitchen. Um, but I, I think there's an intensity sometimes to how, I, how something is said or, yeah. um, you know, how something needs to get done or yes. whatnot. So, yeah. You know, the problem is when you're, you're in a three Michelin star restaurant, there's, I mean, you can't make a mistake. Right. I mean, it's just not acceptable. And so when a mistake is happening that could have been prevented or, I mean, that, that is, you do everything in your power to not get to that point. And when it's happening, it's, it is, it's very easy to lose your temper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I mean, again, there weren't. It's not like there were never days where I, I, I had that I was upset or that you know yeah. maybe not my best self, um, but never insulting. You know, that's that's a line too that doesn't right. need to be crossed. But you didn't question whether you could survive in the industry not being that person. Well, I mean, when you're 20. You know, like I had a lot of self doubt. I still do. I mean, uh-huh. who doesn't have self doubt? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think I, anyone I, who's honest is right. Um, and I felt like, I never felt like I did good enough for, for these guys, you know, even though they, I never, you know, received any sort of like yelling at, yeah. um, you know, it, it's, I don't, I mean, who feels like, okay, I did a great job, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm really good, especially when you're 20 and you're just starting to figure out who you are. I didn't think I was, I mean, I don't know, I was trying my best to, to get somewhere. And I, and I figured going to France was one way to get started with that. Yeah. It's almost like doing, doing time <laughs> uh, because it wasn't easy because, yeah. you know, I, was, I missed Mexico, I missed Mexican food, I missed my friends, I missed my family. Um, and it was a hostile environment <laughs> yeah. to be in. Um, but you know, now I'm nostalgic about it. Now it's become a, a nostalgia thing, right? Like those, well, you endured it. Yes, and those kitchens don't exist anymore. These right. chefs are probably not either super old or not around anymore. Right. Uh, yeah, just a different. I mean, I had, like the, the stuff I made. It's not in restaurants anymore. People yes. don't make that food anymore. Yes. Um, so it's almost like a relic, a historical relic uh, that I lived through. Yeah, um, and that's cool. I mean, in that regard, that's that's something of value that I don't know that exists anymore. I don't know that it's some, an experience that you can obtain anymore. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, I I appreciate the doing time analogy, except <laughs> that you didn't do anything wrong to get no. there. You no, made I put a, myself. You I forced put yourself myself there, there, and yeah. you survived it. Mm-hmm. It probably strengthened you in all kinds of ways. And that's important for a lot of people to listen to, especially young cooks, is that you need you need to kind of do something similar to that, which is that you know there's going to be pain. You know, there's, there's going to be some suffering along the way. Yeah. You're, you're going to eat, you know, instant ramen for a while. Right. Uh, but that's, that is how you're going to set yourself apart yes. from the pack. Yes. Right? I used to tell this to my students every day, just before every graduation. It's like, what is, on their last day of my, in my class, I'd be like, you have to think about what, who you are right now and how are you different from everybody in this room and every student that has graduated from the baking and pastry program yeah what are what is going to set you apart and it doesn't mean that you have to be so setting yourself apart doesn't mean getting on like negative attention yes what i was getting to is that are you going to be the person that shows up 10 minutes before they're supposed to show up at work uh are you uh going to be the person that says well that's not my job or are you going to be a person that it's not your job, but you do it anyway, and then you become an asset to wherever you're working, right? Instead of right. like just another cook. Um, and is it? Well, are you going to be somebody who says like, well, I don't get paid enough to do that? Is that all it's about for you? So it's. I actually told him it's pretty simple. It's an easy path. Yeah. You just have to do these things. It's a mindset. You're it describing is. a mindset. It is, and you'll be surprised how many people. Like, don't buy into it. To me, what it boils down to is, um, several years ago, I started just phrasing it this way. At the end of a day, what's a chef looking for? Mm-hmm. They're looking for people on their team who will make their life in that kitchen easier. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. That could be taking on more responsibility. That can mean helping mm-hmm. getting the place organized in the morning. That mm-hmm. can mean anticipating your needs before you do. Mm-hmm. You know, it can mean right. putting out fires. It can, it can mean all those things. Mm-hmm. If you're that person, 
And the more you're that person, the more advancement and everything you want is yours. Yes. Yes. I don't know. I mean, I I think that it's very, uh, it's pretty clear to me that it's just, it's just do, if you do the right thing, even if nobody's watching that, that is, that is the mentality that you should always have. Yes. Right. And if you do things, uh, you know, okay, nobody's watching. This fell on the floor. I'm going to put it back on the just, plate. Oh, my God. I was just going to say the mm-hmm. ultimate example for me. Yes. And I used to, I never worked in the kitchen, but I used to say it in offices. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a scrap of paper on the floor. You're in on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Do you pick it up and throw it away? Mm-hmm. Or do you only do that if your boss is sitting there on Monday morning? Right. Or if somebody's watching, yeah. right? Like, yeah. So that sounds like such a non, it's so funny to me. You just said everything. that. It's everything. It's everything. I believe, I exactly mm-hmm. the same way. Um, and in fact, like you should do it without even thinking, well, right. nobody's watching. I'm going to do the right thing and do this. No, it's, no, it's it like, be like second nature. Yeah. Right. It's second nature. Right. So if you become that person, I mean, you, the sky's the limit. My theme song and break music is from After School Special's album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. Welcome back to the show. I'm going to get you back to the rest of our conversation with Francisco Magoya in just a moment. Just a quick reminder that we are posting weekly again on our Tokeland blog. So please, when you have a moment, check in with that. Last week, we actually posted a follow-up essay about Jean-Louis Paladin following on the great response we had to the recent tribute to him here on the podcast. Also, please do follow us on social media. At Chef Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. And we are also on Facebook. And I think that's it for housekeeping this week. I'm going to keep it brief and get you right back to my conversation with Francisco Magoya. I hope you enjoy the rest of it. I, I should say, if you hear, if anyone hears me, Chewing. <laughs> I'm taking advantage of some of the pastries here. From, and you, from you picked the crispiest thing. Well, this is, to, I don't know how, do you, you probably know how to pronounce this. Schwiedel. Well, it's it's layer, not spelled, it's, it spells Fogliatelle. Yes. But in, I guess in New York we call it Schwiedel. Yes. It's like Muzzadel. Italian gab, slash gab, southern, that's the Italian American slash southern Italian pronunciation. I would say maybe it's just like not just Italian. right Italian. <laughs> But this is also um, this pastry, which has like a polenta and I think probably orange blossom. Yes, that's hard to do. That's hard uh, to do. Right? The pastry itself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the Americanized version is a lobster tail. Yes. Which has like pastry cream. Yes. Yeah. And it's a little bigger. A little bigger. <laughs> um, anyway, but I digress. Mm-hmm. So take me back, take me to your time in New York. You, mm-hmm. I didn't know this until we were talking last night. Mm-hmm. You spent time, the restaurant amazingly is still there. Mm-hmm. But at a very important restaurant, people are going to think I'm talking about London when I say the name, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the one in Brooklyn, New York. Correct. The River Cafe. The River Cafe was life-changing to me because I first moved to New York City in 1998, uh, and I had a job lined up, and I will not mention where the restaurant is because it's still around. And I started working the, uh, the line, savory line, and I had 13 pickups on my 13 pickups, and that included shucking oysters to order. So it was it was a nightmare. It was two weeks where I, I really reached the depths of misery, and I was like, I had moved away from home, and I'm like in New York City, I didn't have an apartment yet. I was living out of suitcase, and I had this job that was miserable. So I bought the Sunday New York Times, which is what you used to do to find a job. And there were a bunch of job listings, and there was one that they needed a pastry cook for the River Cafe in Brooklyn. And so I thought, you know, I've always loved pastry. In school, I loved it. When I was in France, it was an awesome class. Um, I'll give it a shot. Anything but this, you know? Yeah. And so on my day off, I went to uh, trail at the, at the River Cafe. Now, who was the chef there at the time? This was 98 that you Yeah, were there? the actual chef was Rick Lakonen. And so I, used, I did my trail, and I, it was eye-opening to me because it was the polar opposite of the job I had at that, at that time in which everything just came naturally and it flowed super easily. I memorized the plates like upon seeing them. So it yeah. became like 
it was not to say that it was an easy job, but I, it really felt like something I could do well. Uh-huh. And at the end of that shift, they offered me the job. Um, and I was so happy. I was so happy. Um, and I, I gave my two weeks notice yeah. at my other job. And they're like, you've only been here two weeks. And I said, yes, but come on. You know, this, is, this is not working out for either of us. Yeah. Um, so it was another rough two weeks, but I had a light at the end of a tunnel. Well, I thought you were going to say they kicked you out or something. They no. took you two weeks? Yeah. Okay. Um, and so then I started working at the Rue Cafe, and that was, I, I initially started as, you know, the bottom of the totem pole, you yeah. know, the, the new guy, uh, you know, all, all I did was some production and service. Yeah. Um, and as time went by and pastry chefs just rotated out, yeah. uh, I eventually, like, I assumed the position because they hadn't hired anybody. So in a sense, I mean, I, I hesitate to say that I was a pastry chef at the River Cafe, but I kind of was because nobody else was, and I was doing all of the management stuff of it. Right. So technically, I had assumed the position of, of pastry chef, and, and that was like my last position before I left. Okay. And I didn't really know then the importance of having worked in a place like that, simply because of, you know, all of the chefs, you have a whole chapter in your book about it. Um, yes. And it's, it's, it, it was such a, like, it farmed so many notorious chefs, this yeah. restaurant. Um, For people who don't know, I mean, that in, in succession, mm-hmm. that restaurant had from 79 to late 80s, mm-hmm. the chefs were Larry Forgione, mm-hmm. followed by Charlie Palmer, mm-hmm. Followed by David Burke. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is right. And there were other people there, like for example, uh, you know, a good friend of mine, Johnny Uzzini. Yeah, he he, he worked there too. Yeah. Um, oh I mean, sure. I yeah, mean, he was there. Diane Forley, who mm-hmm. pe- you know people may remember, had a restaurant, Verbena. In, yes. In, in the, in the yes. city. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, no, a lot of there were a lot of people who came through that kitchen. Yes. Yeah. And so it, I, I'm happy to, you know, be, have been a part of that. I uh-huh. mean, it's... And you were there not long past that heyday. I mean... No, yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, I mean, it, it was a, a wonderful restaurant to go to, and it's just the, the view of, of the skyline was just incredible. But it had good food, too. I mean, that's yeah. it's one of those things that it was a bit of a dichotomy, right? You yes. have a, this restaurant that doesn't have to be good. You know, I promised I was going to control the time. I didn't do the best <laughs> job. We are running low on it. Can we fast forward a little? Sure. Can you? I mean, you well, let's just summarize before we get to mm-hmm. the whole modernist cuisine. What do we call modernist? Is it a, the modernist cuisine group? Is it a? So our what do you what do you our call le- the like entity? The legal name, I guess. Whatever we're yeah, know, but our, in our tax forms and my paycheck, it's yes. the cooking lab. Okay, but I mean, what do we do? We call it a lab. Do we call it a uh, a think tank? Do we call it a? I think it's a lab is the best way. to Lab put is it. the best way to put it. Uh, mostly because, like, if you go to my kitchen, there's a there's three distinct environments within this kitchen. One yeah. is that it's a professional kitchen. Yes. And what that means is the you know large machines, large equipment, big ovens. Yes. Uh, you know, proofers, mixers, all yes. that stuff. The second environment is laboratory equipment, and it's laboratory equipment that we use to measure results on experiments. Mm. Uh, so, for example, we'll have a you know texture analyzer. We have yeah. an extensograph, which is a machine that measures the extensibility of a dough. Okay. Uh, so, if we're testing different flours for different doughs, we're testing their uh, elasticity um, and resistance. Uh, we have a 3D scanner so that we can measure the volume of the results because. You can't measure, it's a very organic shape, yes. whatever it is that we're baking or cooking. Yes. So a 3D scanner gives you a very accurate volume measure. Yes. Uh, and then we have the other whiz-bang stuff, like a really big rotary evaporator, which is like a big still. Yeah. Uh, we have a, a large freeze dryer, which yes. is such a luxury to have. Yeah. Um, and then we have our photo studio in the same kitchen as well, uh, with our photographers there, they're like all the time. Yeah. Um, and the third environment is home baking and equipment. Hey. I think you guys know each other. <laughs> you get to interrupt. Not live. You get to interrupt. How are you? Good to, Good see, to you. see you. Chef. Mr. Friedman, how are you? Doing well? Good. It's been Good care. to see you. Thank you for letting us squat. So a lot of people used to say that we, if we were brothers, because I guess some people think we look similar. <laughs> I don't see it, but 
Yeah, right. Yeah, that makes so. that makes zero like zero. I would never. I would no. say you and me before you, you and him. Sure, and I'm like okay. First of all, let me just pack wine for a mm-hmm. second, especially since Jonathan mm-hmm. just walked through. Before you went all in on this, mm-hmm. you you spent time in some very prominent kitchens. You were mm-hmm. you were at the French Laundry. Yes. You were at Bouchon Bakery. Mm-hmm. You am I correct? You ran those programs. Yes. From mm-hmm. the pastry, pastry side, bake, the baking. These are side. these are plum gigs. Mm-hmm. That's why we didn't get to spend more time mm-hmm. in those. But I want to talk about where you are now for a minute. Yes. And you also have a new book coming out. When I say you know what do we call it? You're describing, and I appreciate it. You know mm-hmm. the actual like your team and the mm-hmm. facility. But the over the umbrella organization out there, how many how many people are there, and how would you describe what the mission is? So we're at any given point between contractors and you know people that are permanent, like you know staff. I think we're twenty five or twenty six. Okay, pretty lean. Yes, and but we self publish, which is wonderful. Meaning we have our own editorial department, and we and our own design department. So. It's fantastic to be able to not be held accountable by a publisher, yeah. right? You have to print, go to print now. However, the book is just finish it up. It's ready when Nathan, my boss, says it's ready. But you guys also much. don't have to make concessions to you know. There's these there's these things. Everyone who's done a lot of cookbooks will tell you like you know the famous thing like an editor saying to you like, well, what's somebody in Wisconsin, you know, in Oshkosh going to do with this recipe? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to answer those questions. No, you do the things you want to do that you feel are important, mm-hmm. that you feel have merit, this to the scope you want to do them, mm-hmm. and you don't answer anybody except to your. Readers, right? Right. I mean, you, I assume you guys probably get feedback that's useful, or yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of people. Some <laughs> I, there's a there's somebody who like sifts all of those emails before they send them to me because some are like really nuts. But yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we try to be sensitive to to the fact that like we don't write recipes anymore that require a rotary evaporator or you know a freeze dryer. It's like <laughs> How many people have that, you know? Okay. And then how many people like our rotary evaporator? Just so you know, it's like a big distiller. Yeah, it's massive, and we could put a bunch of stuff in it, a bunch of liquid in it, or you know, f- you know, we, it's big enough that we could do a lot of product sure. with it. Most restaurants that have one, yes, they have a little guy, yeah, that's going all day long to just to get enough of what they need. To yeah. Day. So we're sensitive to that. We're not going to, you know, uh, fool ourselves into thinking that people have all the same equipment yes. as well. So I think the biggest question you're asking is like, what, do, what is our, what is our goal? What is our objective? What's your goal? What do you like? What you know? Mm-hmm. You you you've given up restaurant kitchens mm-hmm. for this, yes. right? What is this? I guess that's the easiest way to put it. Uh, what we we are a resource for knowledge, and that is the most important thing you can have as a cook. Obviously, the you know the know-how and the technique and the you know actually doing the the thing, but. I started writing books when I worked at the CIA, um, mostly because I saw that there was a lack of books for professionals. Yeah. There's a lot of pastry books, that's fine, but they're recipe books mostly, yes. right? Recipe collections. Yes. Uh, and there are books that don't tell you why, you know, what happens when you're making pastry cream. Mm-hmm. Why is this thickening? What is thickening and you know, what are the temperatures that it's thickening yeah. at and could yeah. you make a better pastry cream by understanding that? Yes. Um, what is, you know, laminated doughs and how do they work? One of the hardest things to do for a pastry cook is a beautiful eclair, like yeah. a perfect eclair. Yeah. And I'm because still... Why is that? Well, oh my God, we, that's another hour. Okay. That's another hour. No, I would tell the uh, <laughs> I've done a bad enough job of time management. Um, but long story short is that I've developed a recipe that's taken me about nine years. Yeah. That I, I now I'm happy with it and it's kind of bulletproof, but it's... It's not based on the classic French technique. Yeah. I had to kind of like go beyond that because I had to do some research as, as to what is happening with this paste. Yeah. How is it made? And why are my eclairs not turning out? Right. Why am I looking at these guys in France and their eclairs are perfect and beautiful and straight yeah. and mine look like crap? Yeah. Um, so it was all, all of this started with the intention of, of wanting to make a better product, whether it's an eclair or a croissant or a macaron. I mean, there's, there's, there were so many things that I wanted to get right. Yeah. And a lot of it had to do with the understanding of how it worked, how mm-hmm. the ingredients work with each other, yeah. um, how the ovens work. And all of these things, they didn't really exist in a book. 
There were a lot of, there's a lot of technical papers that are written, academic papers on, you know, ingredient interactions and starches. And so I had to read all of those and I had to kind of teach myself how to understand that language because it's, it's, the language of science is pretty different. Yeah. It's, it's not something that you speak in an everyday common conversation, especially if you're a chef. Yeah. So it, it was a lot of time doing like that sort of research. And the first book I wrote was, it's called Frozen Desserts. Mm-hmm. And it's not a New York Times number one bestseller, but it's still in print. Yeah. People still tell me that it's one of their favorite books. Yeah, it's like a go-to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, and, you know, while the pictures in it are dated, the information is not. Right. right. It's still a solid uh, resource for understanding yeah. frozen desserts. And not just ice cream or sorbets, but pretty much every frozen dessert that exists. You... Um it's funny, you may know, you mentioned the example of the eclair. I'd, I'd love to know, you know what, I don't have time to ask you this question and ask you the other questions. <laughs> you know what, can I give you an open invitation if you're ever in town and you yes. just feel talkative? All right. Just sit down and, can we do that? <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm totally serious. Yeah, let's do that. But I wanted to ask you this. You know, we were talking about, um, you know, do you call yourself an artist, right? Mm-hmm. Now, and the answer may be that you don't feel the need to call yourself anything, right? Mm-hmm. But what do you consider yourself now? That is, I was actually going to say, do I, am I still a chef? Well, cause because to me, a chef, chef is someone who very, you know, there used to be this phrase like home chef. Right. And, and oh, I would, or like people would say, yeah, oh, mm. do you want to come to a dinner party? My friend's a great chef. And I'd be like, that, that's not a chef. <laughs> a chef cooks, uh-huh. runs a team usually, uh-huh. for sure is cooking and, and uh, right. in a public situation mm-hmm. and selling that food. That's usually, I mean, at, at a minimum, it's some version of that. Right. You probably have a better definition. Well, but I wish I but did. You, mm. But that's, that's not what you're doing anymore. Right. Uh, I think most people, if I said that I was sitting down with you, mm-hmm. uh, uh, they would say, oh, he's a really important chef. You mm-hmm. know, they would, you, they would categorize mm-hmm. you that way. How do you, how, have you, it seems like you've I've thought about thought this. I've thought of it. Yeah. Totally thought about it. Because, I mean, in my mind, yes, a chef is running a kitchen. Right. Whether it's savory or sweet or whatever. With some kind of timing constraints. Right. Service. And you're cooking. For service. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I don't do that anymore. Right. And I'm very far removed from that. I do, I, when we write books, I spend half my day in the kitchen. Yes. And half my day in the computer writing. Uh-huh. So there's a lot of research that goes into everything that we do, a lot of experimentation. Um, my title is Head Chef. Mm-hmm. Just because it's easier to communicate it like that. But... I mean, I, to answer your question, I don't. I mean, if I had to put myself in a category of what it is that I am, I don't know. I mean, I, I really, I honestly don't have a label for what Interesting. I do. Interesting. Does it matter to you? No. Yeah. Not really. But yes, I mean, I, I don't. Do, I mean, first of all, do we need? Does it need to be defined? I don't know if if it's necessary. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But I think an important also thing to mention is that while I that's my job, I could easily jump into a line in a kitchen and run it. And I could easily do mise en place in production. And, you know, half of my time I also spend it, I teach a lot of classes around the world. Yeah. Um, And and I either teach a bread class or I teach a pastry class or a viennoiserie class. And that's not for a restaurant, but it's, it's, I'm producing food to teach. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm grateful to have the ability to do those things. Yeah. But would I change titles when I'm doing those things? Exactly. Or can I that'd just keep silly. the one? You of know? course, it'd be like, silly. That's, that's well, when you and I first met at the, after that conference, you did a collaborative dinner with Claudette yes. at uh, El Jardin. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. That was a restaurant event that Correct. you did the desserts mm-hmm. for. Yes. And, so. some, and uh, like a couple of savory courses. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So before you run to the airport now, because uh-huh. I kept you too long, can you just quickly tell me about the new book, which comes out? Uh, we're sitting here in well, September. Yes. Uh, I don't think anybody should hold their breath. It's a book on pizza, and okay. we've been on it for two years already. Okay. And we probably have another year to go. Okay. So it's, you know, keep an eye out. It's a fantastic. I mean, I'm really super happy with it. I, I didn't think I'd be this excited about pizza as I am. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the simplicity of Italian food, but yeah. I, few things are more complex than a Neapolitan pizza. Yeah. There really is a lot going on there. Yeah. And... You know, I, I, it's another recipe that I keep perfecting and perfecting and perfecting, and I'm, I'm super happy with where we are right now. Yeah. Um, but it, it's in the, in the realm of, like, geeking out about food Neapolitan pizza is yeah. up there, yeah. for sure. Yeah. 
Um, no, and it, so, is, it inspires a lot of passionate yes. arguments, debate. Um, but there's also so much that is that people think they know about it that yes. is not accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to go get into it right now, but there's 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 a lot of just like with bread. Yeah, pizza has a lot of mysticism. Yeah, it has a lot of romanticism as yes. well as you know you have to use the tomatoes from Mount Vesuvius. Uh, yeah. You have to use this water. You have to use this flour, yes. or you're you know screwed. And that's yeah. there's some of it is accurate, but very little of it. And it all comes down to executing a recipe well. And right. it will always come down to that. Same for yeah. the bagels. That you know that you don't need New York City water for bagels. You can do it with any water yes. as long as you execute the recipe properly. Right. Um, so it's all about execution. Yeah, for sure. So. That's that's what we're working on. Well, I hope you will come. I mean it when I say it. I'd yeah. love whenever mm-hmm. we're in the same. I mean, these, I'd love to keep this conversation going. Me too. Um, and uh, for those of you listening, I will have mentioned. I will make a point of mentioning in the intro to the show. But I will just say again, we gave a little bit of short shrift to some of the topics that I think would naturally come up around what you do. But mm-hmm. we got into a lot of that when we sat down in San Diego. Yes. Uh, earlier this year, mm-hmm. uh, and we did talk about sort of the 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 what would seem to be a gap between mm-hmm. the romance of a lot of uh, classic recipes, mm-hmm. and especially baking, mm-hmm. and whether or not taking the scientific approach mm-hmm. to these things uh, was consistent with the effect, yes. right? We talked about that, and, and uh, I thought that was a great conversation. So that is there. Mm-hmm. I will have given at the, at the top of this show the, uh, the, t- the uh the timestamp for where in that episode you can listen to that. Great. And if you want to listen to some chatter about Neapolitan pizza, which Francisco may or may not agree with, <laughs> we had um, uh, Daniele Uditi mm-hmm. from Pizzana. Yes. He now has a second one since we did the In interview. LA, right? He's in Brentwood in West Hollywood. Yes, I've been there. And I we had Dan good. Richer from oh my God. That's awesome. Raza. Jeez. So Daniele really was good. in town to do a collaborative dinner at Raza. Right. Mm-hmm. And we had the two of them on. And we spent part of that mm-hmm. conversation talking about Neapolitan pizza. Mm-hmm. So I will give you guys the timestamp and episode number for that at the top of this show. Mm-hmm. So if you want to do a little more listening around some of these topics, you could do that. All right, Francisco, th- thanks for coming to the party. No, thanks for inviting and me. And thanks for squeezing this in before your flight home. It was my great pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Great to see you again. And that's our show for this week. A huge thank you to Francisco Magoya for joining us for that conversation during his brief visit to New York City and also for traveling all the way across country to come to our second anniversary party. That really meant a lot to me and something I won't forget anytime soon. David Tatashore, our engineer, thank you for splicing these things together as always. And to Jonathan Benno of the wonderful Benno Restaurant in New York City and the more casual restaurant in the same location there, Leonelli Taberna, and the focaccia that provided the awesome pastry that I was nibbling on during the show. Please visit and support those businesses. They are on East 27th Street in New York City, and it's some terrific food at all three venues. And that's it for this week's show. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you back here next week with a new episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. 